everyone and welcome. Thank you for joining me tonight and those who are joining me tomorrow morning. Uh, hey to you too. Alright, so I did promise that I would cover some positive news this time because we did it on Christmas and it worked out really well despite the, the bad curtains. If you recall, it still worked because there is actually good news you know, in this world, it's just that the general trajectory is downward. Yeah, this is my version of uplifting, sorry. I'm already I'm already kind of doing, doing the pessimistic thing. I can't help myself, what can I say? But we'll go ahead and start with the fact that CNN Plus is shutting down. And we should all celebrate and laud that because after all, there's less misinformation now. And isn't that what we're all supposed to be looking forward to? Because misinformation is this word that's thrown around now. It's like, it's like the, the main word that's thrown around by media outlets who engage in it. And they, they use it to try and say, well, you know, these, these small uh, news delivery people, there's, there's YouTubers and there's bloggers and all of this, they should be shut down and we should be allowed to reign even as they put out one false news story after another. But CNN Plus failed. Utterly less than a month after it launched. Uh, the New York Post said that CNN spent $300 million launching it and between $100 million and $200 million advertising it. And it's already failing because they're proving that, I don't know, that you can't advertise CNN Plus and get people to pay for it. I mean, why, why would they? Uh, just being honest here. I mean, you've got Don Lemon, who just announced his show a few days ago, guys. I mean, you won't be able to sign up and pay to listen to him? I mean, I was trying to give you good news and now it seems like I'm giving you a tragedy. How are you going to listen to Don Lemon on demand at a fee? <laughs> and then there's Chris Wallace's show. Um, you know, he's the guy who was on Fox News. For those who don't remember the name, but do remember the face, that's Chris Wallace. You know, podcast listeners can't see him, but you might remember him from when he was mediating the the presidential debates, and he was extremely unfair with Trump, and even those on the left thought so too. Um, yeah, that, that's Chris Wallace, and he got picked up by CNN and CNN Plus. But honestly, I don't think that we're going to see the last of Chris Wallace just yet. So just hang in there. If you're a CNN watcher, I imagine that Chris Wallace will get Chris Cuomo's spot. You know, like the actual prime time spot because Chris Cuomo got kind of forced out after a massive scandal. I'm not going to go into that all over again. Uh, but yeah, and there was going to be a time where you could pay CNN plus actual money to to tune into their website at any time and watch any of these intellectual giants. But as it, as it sounds, it would seem that 300 junior staffers have already been fired because they can't, um, well, they don't need them because no one's signing up for CNN Plus. And honestly, whose, whose idea was it, the whole CNN Plus thing? Because I'm not trying to be offensive, okay, maybe a little, but they could have asked me and I would have told them that CNN Plus wasn't going to work because airports don't need that. And let's be honest here, where else? do you tune in to CNN ad? And when you're watching it in an airport, it's muted, you know, for the relief of everyone because they don't want, you know, more mass shootings at airports. So they, they mute it and they just put the subtitles on so it's easier for you to look away. I thought that we were all sort of in a collective agreement at this point. Are, are we not? Uh, apparently not. But airports don't need to 
pay extra so you can watch on-demand programming. They just turn it on and leave it. And they're paid by CNN to specifically do that. That's what the contract says. So it's not it's not pay in the other direction. Ah, uh, yeah, you, you just can't. Um, anyway, oh, thank you for checking out the, the microphone and telling me that it sounds okay. Good, because I'm trying out a different mic tonight. Thank you to the person who, who sent it. I know you wanted to be anonymous, but I do, in any case, appreciate it. You know who you are. And, um, let's see. The plants are remarkably still alive, said one person. Well, sort of. There's this one over here to my right that I keep spinning because I'm getting fewer angles at which I can spin it and it looks lively because it's starting to sort of like blacken on the edges. I wish I were joking, but I'm not. It is actually blackening. I don't know what that one's called. I think that maybe a spider plant or something, but it's not my fault because it did say that this one was hard to kill and clearly it's not. The other two are, are still doing okay, but they're kind of more cactusy. So there is that. And they are actually pretty dry. I was moving them over to the desk earlier. They are dry, the soil is. I was noticing, and I could have watered them then, but I was thinking, you know, um, that I needed to wait until later. That, that'll happen, that'll happen. Uh, no, the, sna the snake plant is on the desk like behind me right here. So that's not the snake plant. This one up here is the one that's dying with the, with the leaves that needs presumably more water. I don't know. I don't know what it needs. If I knew what it needed, it wouldn't be dying. And yet it is. So anyway, uh, yeah, challenge accepted. All, all my plants die. They're, they're just, they're, what's going to happen is it'll be removed and replaced and it'll look subtle, uh, really subtle, uh, hopefully, because I'll get one that's the same size. It's, it's what I've done for years. Um, Again, wish I was joking. Okay, so anyway, getting on to some more good news, though. Uh, you may remember the Gretchen Whitmer story, of course. She's the uh, Michigan governor who put in place massive lockdowns, who closed down churches, who mandated masks, who uh, was tyrannical, frankly, in her enforcement of a a regime under COVID, right? Under the guise of fighting COVID, she took away the rights and freedoms of her citizens, and she did so in violation of what uh, the legislature over there in Michigan actually wanted. You may remember that. And after that, um, what we had was jurors, sorry, what we had was people who allegedly wanted to kidnap her. And this was this was a big story that there was this massive sort of malicious style unit of, of evil right-wingers who were working together to try and do something about this woman. This is what we were told. And they had plotted to kill her, to set off explosives. And this was proof, proof that, um, I guess, right-wingers are violent. Proof that there needs to be an extremist watchdog out there in government, proof that we need more invasion of our privacy. It was used as all of those things. And some individuals were charged in this so-called plot, right? Well, increasingly the defendants in this case are getting released. Their charges are being dropped. Uh, just recently, jurors acquitted two defendants of all charges in the so-called plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer. They couldn't, the jury did not or could not come to an agreement on a verdict for two others. So we're talking about four cases. Uh, in two of those cases, they were acquitted outright. And in two of the cases, you've got a hung jury. Um, for those who don't know the difference here, with the cases of the hung jury where the jury could not make a decision, 
it is possible they will be tried again. And if the prosecution does a better job, then they'll be found guilty or they could be you know, acquitted. And then after they're acquitted, they cannot be charged again for the same crime because that would be double jeopardy. And we do have protections against that in this country, um, seemingly only barely sometimes, but I digress because that's a different topic with state and federal charging. Um, so yeah, um, it's surprising actually to me. I mean, maybe it's because it's good news and I'm just like, I'm just so used to covering bad news all the time, it seems like. But it is surprising because when you've got, if you think about it, you've got these federal prosecutors telling a jury that these people, these men, were planning on kidnapping a sitting governor and, you know, forcing her to comply in one way or another or, or injuring her and so on. I would actually expect a jury to listen to the feds in this case, to just kind of go along with it and not to step back and think calmly and objectively about the fact that there was massive entrapment in this case. And there was. I mean, <laughs> it's unbelievable. In fact, ABC News, though, is busy complaining. Seriously, you can read the articles of just, it's like leftist tears, to be honest. The jury pool was drawn from a 22-county region in western and northern Michigan that is largely rural, Republican, and conservative. That's how ABC News covered it. So in other words, because this comes from part of the country, uh, the jury comes from part of the country that ABC News does not relate to, you know, like California or New York City, uh, Washington, D.C., therefore the jury is in some way unfair because they're actually a jury of peers. That's what it comes down to, right? Because when you look at most of these different... Um, cases, for example, in the January 6th cases, well, they're not really a jury of peers. They're a jury of people up in Washington, D.C. who work for the federal government. In Washington, D.C., you have, what, I think it was like 97% of the people voted for Hillary Clinton in the presidential race against President Trump. That's not reflective of, like, mainstream America. It's certainly not reflective of rural America. And yet, uh, that's the way it is. And that's why the January 6th is who take a jury trial are doing so badly because the jury is made up of those kind of swamp rats. Um, the DOJ is so corrupt. Yes, it absolutely is. Um, but again, we have some good news. And these were supposed to be, this Gretchen Whitmer case, these were supposed to be slam dunk cases. It was supposed to be a slam dunk. Um, it's a talking point for the left. The terrorist right-wingers, they're involved in political violence. You've heard these phrases, right? We've all heard these phrases. Yeah. And so that's, that was kind of their, their whole shtick. So Daniel Harris, who was 24, and Brandon Caserta, who's 33, were found not guilty of conspiracy. And also Harris had been charged with charges related to explosives and a gun. They were also acquitted. Now, it's interesting because when you're looking at a charge of conspiracy, that's something that in general, it's pretty easy for them to find you guilty of because all you have to do is talk with other people. And then if one of those other people goes out and does something in regards to whatever you were talking about, you know, you were you were saying things you shouldn't have been in a bar or whilst high, which apparently some of these people were, um, and they, they start, you know, aggrandizing themselves as far more active than they are, and then one person goes and decides, okay, I'm going to actually act this out, well, then you can be found guilty of conspiracy. So it's actually pretty easy in general for prosecutors to get a person and to find a person guilty of conspiracy with a jury. So it's, it's great news. But with the, um, the other two, Adam Fox and Barry Craft Jr., they're the two who um, 
had the hung jury, though they had, they were also charged with a conspiracy. Now, you had 13 days of testimony in this case, with prosecutors offering evidence from undercover agents, a crucial informant, and two men who pled guilty to, uh, to the plot. So, we have 12 informants. 12 informants, 6 defendants, 12 informants. Um, so, the, 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 I mean, seriously, at this point, it's like the left wanted there to be a, a right-wing militia, so they created one out of, out of FBI informants. I mean, I'm not trying to be facetious here, but at some point when you've got 12 of them, there's something going on. When you've got 12 of them, you're the one who's making it happen. And in fact, it has come out in court documents that the ringleader of this whole plot was an informant. They had their different FBI agents specifically procuring explosives for them because these people had no idea what they were doing with regards to that, obviously. Because they were just regular guys who liked to, you know, drink and apparently use marijuana. That was their thing, to, to sit around and, and trash talk uh, the, the governor in Michigan, understandably. And then they got a little carried away with their trash talk because they had FBI agents inside of them who were pushing them to say things that they wouldn't have otherwise said. And certainly who pushed them to do things they wouldn't have otherwise done in some of these cases. So yeah, it, it's absolutely these agents playing agent provocateur, which we is supposed to be illegal. And fortunately, in this case, you've had jurors who said, okay, this isn't the way that the government is supposed to work. The government overstepped in a major way, and we're not going to allow it. And I think that's awesome. And, you know, this case would have gotten so much more coverage had we gotten a different result. And that's one of the reasons that I'm covering it. It is good news, and it's a good news to our side, I hate to use the term, but, but, but it is good news to people who are on the right, who are conservative, who are... Um, liberty-leaning, who are traditionalist, and because of that, it isn't covered in the media because they want to keep people uh, like us in a state of just sort of, I guess, despair, and this is a hindrance to that, and that's one of the reasons that I'm trying to sort of cover more stories like this as often as I possibly can, because it's not all bad. All right, hold on, let me get a drink, and then we will continue. Yes, uh, too many feds equals crime creation. You're not wrong. You, you're really not. It's like they had a job to do and they did it. They're like, we just can't push these people to go ahead and start getting ex explosives. So you know what? We'll just get them for you. You know, they, they show up at the same bar or where, wherever that these other guys are and they're like, okay, so are we going to kidnap Gretchen or, or, or what? How are we going to do this? And the other guys are just like, yeah, yeah, of course, we're, we're going to do that. And then nothing happens, of course, because they're just sitting around and drinking. And so suddenly the FBI agent's like, well, what if, what if we get some stuff? <laughs> it's just, you know, that we call that, what, justice, law enforcement, investigating, really? Any of that? No. No, it's not any of that. And I'm... Yeah, there was a jury who was able to see beyond it because it didn't because the trial didn't take place in DC. But there is a case that did take place in Washington DC in which we had a good outcome recently and again, it hasn't had that much coverage except for BuzzFeed News did cover this story with indignation, which I found quite amusing. So, <laughs> here's what happened. A guy named Matthew Martin, Martin, sorry, went on January 6th at the president's call 
you know, like so many did. And he walked up the steps of the Capitol, went inside the Capitol. He filmed as he walked around peacefully, spent about 10 minutes inside the Capitol, and then left. And so he was charged, as most of the people, perhaps even all of the people who went to the Capitol, have been charged at this point. But interestingly, in this case, he did not seek a jury trial, because... I would presume that he knew what the juries are like in Washington, D.C. So instead, he went with just a regular judge, U.S. District Court Judge Trevor uh, McFadden. And he got found not guilty. That was not guilty. Uh, this is interesting. So he was charged with knowingly entering or remaining in any restricted building or grounds without lawful authority, disorderly conduct, which impedes the conduct of government business, disruptive conduct in the Capitol buildings, and finally, parading, demonstrating, or picketing in the Capitol, business, Capitol buildings. So very few people knew that most of those were even, you know, misdemeanors, or that they even existed as crimes, right? But the thing was, and what was interesting is, his defense was that a cop waved at him to go into the building. And, well, that happened a lot on January 6th. Lots of different cops motioned people into the building, these people who were inside the building, I mean, I'm sure you've seen the video of them walking in, in single file lines, staying within the ropes. That's, that's not an insurrection, sorry. It's not a riot, even, when they're, when they're walking like that. And so a lot of people were actually, were directed by police. In fact, some police moved the barricades that had previously been set up, if we're going to call them barricades, because... They're not what I think of when I think of barricades. It's more like, like scaffolding pieces. But anyway, they were moved out of the way by cops at the time when the crowd was there. But what's interesting about this case is this guy spoke in his own defense. And that doesn't usually happen in these January 6th cases. He, he stood there and he spoke in his own defense. And he didn't describe it as an insurrection which he so badly regrets. You know, which some of them have. He said that he, well, he described January 6th as magical. And he explained that he walked to the Capitol calmly while recording. There was a cop who waved in his direction, said, you know, to go on in. And he went in. And that was it. And so the judge said that he thought that account was credible and found him not guilty. And there are so many people like him. And I think a lot of them, I know a lot of them, are being pressured into into pleading guilty because they expect long prison terms should they take this to trial and that's really tragic and a lot of them have families and they're just trying to do the best they can by their families at this point and they're being told okay if i if i plead guilty to this thing that i didn't do I'll, um i'll get six months or something and if i risk going to trial i might get years and so they're making uh these these plea deals that they i don't want to say they shouldn't make but that in any other case, they wouldn't even have to deal with. How about that? And the thing is that so many of them who went into the Capitol didn't know that they were committing a crime at all, misdemeanor or otherwise. Like, I, as I've said before on this channel, I went on January 6th, you know? I, I was out there on the ellipse and out there outside the Capitol. I didn't enter the Capitol, but had I, I wouldn't have presumed that I was committing a crime. Because not everywhere did you have cops there pushing back. A lot of it really was quite peaceful. A lot of those entrances were open. With You can look inside and you could see the corridor going down. And you could just make the choice to go in or not. I didn't. But 
I, I can understand why a person would walk in and not expect there to be any sort of retribution. Um, Ocean Breathes Salty says, we're supposed to be allowed in there anyway. Can you trespass on public property? Well, yeah, exactly. That's the thing. I always kind of wondered after this whole debacle, like if you had told like the founders of America about what had happened here, I imagine after you described the fact that a, a, a crowd had decided to enter the Capitol building, they would say, well, why, why were the doors locked? Why weren't the people allowed in? to their building, right? Uh, that's, that's the kind of response that I would have expected. So it, it always is, seemed kind of comical when you've got these people going on about this this massive insurrection when it's like they're supposed to, uh, it, it, you would think it would be a public building in any case. Uh, for posterity says, but if you did, you'd have nothing to be sorry for. These people prosecuting them are evil. Well, yeah, and the way that they've, they've been treated, too, after being arrested, is something that I've talked about so many times, and I don't regret speaking about it. I think we still should. They have been abused and treated like, well, I guess abused like political prisoners in some kind of tyrannical country, right? Uh, yeah, you can read into that what you will. I've covered it so many times, those who have been seriously injured in the jails up there in Washington, D.C., those who have been placed in solitary confinement for extreme lengths of time up there in Washington, D.C., those who've been assaulted, tied up, those who had their um, orbital sockets broken, and also those who've been forced to read propaganda that they didn't want to read because their lawyers, their public defenders, insisted that they go through some kind of re-education re campaign or an indoctrination campaign in order to describe to the judge how they're redeemed people. And so you would think that we didn't have sort of political tests for before a person's sentencing, but we do in this country. Apparently up there in Washington, D.C., we do at least. And again, I've covered this before, but that, that's been happening with these different January 6ers being told, well, you have to read all these different super leftist books, and then after you've read them, then we can say that you're, you're a better person now and... You, you believe what we tell you to believe. And then there are the people who have been charged because of the organizations that they're a part of, like the Proud Boys or the Three Percenters or something like that, regardless of whether or not they, they themselves engaged in an act of violence. There are people who have not engaged in any of those acts, and yet they were charged and have been held without a possibility of bail until trial. Because the prosecutors are arguing that these people present some kind of a threat uh, based upon nothing, based upon affiliation and association. And these people are still, quite, quite, right now, at the time of this recording, are still incarcerated, awaiting trial. We ought to find this audacious. They're not charged with anything that serious, but we're holding them there because they're associated with the Proud Boys or Three Presenters or... Um, the Oath Keepers, or, or some other group that's that's deemed to be on the right. Uh, yes, they're in jail for over a year, tortured, but they let the mall shoot it out with an ankle bracelet. Yeah, we certainly don't have a, a system of justice that is equal and fair, do we? Um... 
the Proud Boys never did anything until they were attacked, then they defended themselves and got arrested. Well, the thing is that what people nowadays seem less inclined to recall is that the Proud Boys were a group that sort of appeared, at least politically speaking, when they had to provide security for people who were conservative or traditionalist, right? So back in 2016, when you had Ann Coulter, who went to Berkeley University, and she was attacked by Antifa and so on, that's when you had the Proud Boys show up to provide a sort of security force. When you had the, the riots that happened in 2016 and in 20, uh, 2020, sorry, you had the Proud Boys who showed up and defended innocent people. When you had, uh, before the January 6th case, in November and December, you had what were known as Stop the Steal events up there in Washington, D.C., right? And they were just, just people just walked around. I went to at least one of them and filmed and put out a video, in fact, of it. And they're just calm, right? It was, it was just crowds of different Trump supporters, very uh, jovial, and we walked and we marched and we, you know, listened to a few speakers and that kind of thing. Not that eventful. Until people started to disperse and go home. And it was during those times when people who were on their on their own, and separated from the crowd, would get attacked by members of Antifa. That is when the Proud Boys showed up and responded to that threat, when police were unwilling to, when police actually made it difficult for the Make America Great Again crew to get to safety because they were blocking off roads and preventing uh, those people who were being attacked from going the fastest route home. That's what actually happened. The Proud Boys stood up when law enforcement failed to do its job to protect people. And again, this was over in Washington, D.C., so if people were not armed and did not have the ability to defend themselves against crowds, because that's what, you know, being armed gives you the capacity to do, to defend yourself against more people or stronger people or um, better trained people than you. The gun is the equalizer. You can't have that in Washington, D.C., which is incredibly ironic given that this is America. Uh, you would think that you would, but in any case, there we go. And yes, you're absolutely right about the Proud Boys trying to deliver um, food to food banks, to numerous food banks, actually. Uh, I know I did one about Enfield food banks, I believe, and there was also the Hartford food banks. Keep rejecting uh, Proud Boys donations because I don't know. I, I would say because and, and say something that seems appropriate, but they actually don't have anything even remotely appropriate. They said that it would reflect badly upon them if they ex accepted it. But I would generally lean toward the fact that what reflects badly on a food bank is when they turn away food, or rather when they threaten to destroy food because it comes from the wrong party. It's like it's not like the food from the Proud Boys came with some note that says it can only be distributed to white people. That didn't happen. Um, that's not a thing. That's not how the Proud Boys even are. But, you know, it's like the Proud Boys just delivered food and said, you distribute it according to the way that your organization works. And they were unwilling to so, to, to do that. So it's it, that's the times that we live in. Uh, Zimbo says their leader is also not white. Well, their, their chairman was Enrique Tarrio, uh, who isn't white. I don't know who their replacement chairman is at this point. I have interviewed Enrique I think three times on this channel. You're welcome to look at them. But I don't know about uh, the other people. Uh, yes, I was injured by DC cops on January 6th. It's a flashbang, actually, that hit too close and uh, damaged my, my hearing in my right ear. So 
but it's all right. You know, you, you move on. Okay, and we are going to move on, in fact, because we have, in fact, more good news. Because I, I, I know it's like <laughs> so much good news this week. Um, this one, though, is about Florida, because a lot of our good news is coming from Florida, because you've got Ron DeSantis down there, who's doing a, a remarkable job. And the state has now, well, the, the, the Senate and the House have passed legislation ending Disney's protected status. So the Florida House voted 68 to 38, and the Senate also backed the bill, which protect, you know gets rid of Disney's protected status, 23 to 16. So now all it takes is DeSantis to sign this, and he is the one who kind of pushed pushed forth on this pretty heavily, even before it went to the House and the Senate, so we can expect him to sign. This bill would come into effect on June 1st, 2023. I'm not sure why it's not tomorrow, but in any case, that's what it is. I'm giving you full disclosure here. There's, there's no good news for me without just like some bad. I, I, I know, I'm sorry. Um, so in any case, let, let's look back though. There was this 55-year-old deal between Florida and Disney that allowed Disney to sort of like own its own piece of Florida and just to regulate land, enforce building codes of its own, to, to treat its own wastewater. Um, they could control their own power, their own water, their own emergency services. They got massive tax breaks. And now all of that's ending. But do you know how messed up it is that that's kind of a situation even existed to begin with? Like, yeah, we can talk about the, the politics of Disney and maybe we will in a minute, but we ought to kind of slow down and say, hold up, you know, we shouldn't have that for any company anywhere. We shouldn't have these special deals because a company is large. I define that as corruption. And, you know, when you've got people who are, I'm just going to say Republican, who talk about the free market, they should be looking at situations like this. Because it's not just Disney, but Disney is obviously a pretty extreme case of this. But we should be eliminating these cases where a company by virtue of its size, gets perks that a smaller company would not get and could not possibly compete with. We shouldn't allow that. That's just not having a free market. It's having a sort of fascistic uh, system, you might say, or corporate ask. Yeah, there's another word for it. I'm not going to try. Uh, and it's wrong. Uh, Jason says Disney is a last cause. Well, yeah, it is. So Florida should sort of reclaim its own little uh, piece back. But I would like to see you know, where Disney goes from here. Like, are they going to try and start up in California, you know, with all of their building codes? Because I'd find that personally rather comical. Just being honest here, if, if you know, if the, Disney's like, I'm going to go on over to California and we're going to work in our territory with our people. It's like, go for that. You can see just how many approvals you have to get before you can start recreating Disney World, you know, one brick at a time. It's going to... And, yeah, they were getting massive tax breaks as well. I thought I already mentioned that, but apparently given the chat, perhaps I didn't, because this was kind of like their own piece of land as opposed to a piece within a county, they didn't have to pay a lot of the taxes on it either, which again, it gives them an unfair advantage over both the citizenry, arguably, and also, most certainly, against a smaller competitor who would have to pay any taxes in a, in a similar scenario. The leftist argument or counter-argument on Twitter today was, well, now blue states are going to target Chick-fil-A and Home Depot and other companies that they have 
or believed to be right-leaning, I suppose, or Christian-leaning, I'm not sure which. If it was Christian-leaning, I think they more go for Hobby Lobby. But in any case, that was the argument. We're just going to target those companies. Well, firstly, it's not really targeting, it's fixing a wrong. But also, Chick-fil-A isn't trying to indoctrinate kids or groom them or expose them to half-and-half gay characters or any of this stuff, or trying to push, what was the phrase, a not-so-secret gay agenda. Chick-fil-A isn't doing any of that. And if these people really aren't groomers, then they shouldn't have a problem with us taking any sort of action against, uh, against Disney at this point. It's a company that specifically, in its entire sort of ethos and reason for existing, is to attract children. And they've taken that position in which they are attracting children, and they've said, okay, and now we're going to hypersexualize them and insert different sexual messages that, by the way, are also degenerate and push them on these kids who, in prior times, wouldn't have been exposed to any sort of sexualization, including, you know, heterosexual stuff. You didn't know, you know, what romantic relationships the different Disney characters were in. You didn't care. That wasn't really a thing. Now it's constantly a thing. And they are, at a, at a rate far beyond the, the real population, uh, showing presence in the LGBT communities and all of that. Because they're trying to, to foist this on kids. It's wrong. It is actually what we call grooming. And I think people are throwing this word grooming around a little bit to some degree without realizing what it is. So I'm just going to slow down for a second here and just say, in a, gosh, I hate to use this phrase, but in a more traditional pedophilic uh, exchange, right? So you've got, let's say a, a pedophile is, I don't know, the tennis coach, all right, with his uh, young girl who's trying to, to, to play the tennis. Um, the, the first step in his attempt to get her to engage in sexual relations with him is for him to talk to her about different things that she would not talk to an adult about otherwise. You know, things of a sexual nature. This is the very first step. And it builds this, this trust and this sense of secrecy between the two so that later on he can expand that because these two are, are, are best friends, best buddies, and they have something that nobody else has. And she already doesn't talk to her parents about this, this thing that's going on anyway, because they have a super buddy network. That's grooming. That is what Disney is doing with its forcing these little sexual messages and getting kids to think in that specific way that they wouldn't otherwise think in without being pushed by the groomer. The groomer is Disney. Uh, at this point. And there's, there's a, as I said before, there's a lot of overlap between the sort of um, LGBT, if we're going to use the phrase, uh, community and uh, and pedophilia. And that's becoming harder and harder to ignore. It's very difficult to make an argument and say, well, you know, even homosexuality, that's kind of at the, the root of the issue, is that as soon as you start saying, well, homosexuality is equal and exactly the same as uh, heterosexuality in the in the in the moral sense, that both are perfectly okay, perfectly acceptable, and you're both born that way. There's nothing that anybody can do. Um, it's just, you're sort of made that way by God, to use a phrase that I saw used recently. Well, I, I'm not sure how you can say that and then say, well, this other type of sexual attraction is not the same way. 
It's not intrinsic, and that's the trouble with pedophilia. At some point you say, okay, so we do have these different warped sexualities within an innate, and they're okay because they're innate. We should accept them because they're innate. It's immoral not to accept them because they're innate. And now you start to have these different speeches and lecturers and professors who start out saying, well, you know, pedophilia, we think it might start in the womb. We think it might be something these people are born with. And you see the parallel connections being made. Like, it, it, it's very difficult not to see for me at this point. And I think it should be for other people who are paying attention. Um... Uh, Martin says, keep it a secret from your parents. That's a textbook definition of grooming. Well, that's what we've seen happening in the classrooms of, of late. Is that when, and we saw it especially during the early days of COVID, right? You had the teachers who were coming online and they were talking about how difficult it was for them to be educators, as they self-described, because they couldn't discuss certain topics, including race and sex, because their parents might be around and traditionally speaking for them they had had conversations with those kids and told them just don't tell your parents about this because we don't want to deal with that it's like well okay that's actually you grooming the kids and saying well we're going to take this sort of um primacy over over the kids and over their education and over their moral and religious and spiritual instruction and uh, and assert ourselves there we're also going to establish a sort of buddy network like i was talking about before with grooming um, with these kids, it's intensely immoral, and it's happening regularly. And that's just one more reason to, to get the kids out of the public schools if you, if you possibly can. Um, going back to, uh, Dianne says, are you Catholic? Yes, I was just confirmed in the Easter Vigil, so yes. Um, and, okay, going back though to the, the Disney argument, we shouldn't have special privileges for corporations to begin with. So the whole thing of the left is saying, well, now blue state governors can, can target Chick-fil-A or target whatever, you know, company they perceive as being on the right. I was like, okay, target how? Target by removing the special privileges. Which ones? Because to my knowledge, there aren't any special privileges in any state for Chick-fil-A, but if there are, I'm fine getting rid of them and having a level playing field. I, I don't have a problem with that at all. But what I don't see is a state that allows Chick-fil-A to have its own nuclear power plant. And according to Ron DeSantis and other Republicans down there in Florida, the, the, the prior bill that gave Disney these special privileges did in fact allow it to have a nuclear power plant if it so wanted. So, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just an absurd argument all, all around. Um, Oatmeal Joey says, I believe in private property rights. Yeah, no, no arguments there. Okay, I was just seeing if you guys had any sort of uh, side conversation that I should be be weighing in. Um, oh, hey, Paul. May God continue to bless you. I appreciate that. All right, let's go ahead and, and move forward because I did want to show you something, all right? So Concordia University in Montreal, that's Quebec in Canada, updated its conduct policy. And I want to show it to you. I think I have it somewhere. There we go. 
All right, so this is obviously um, someone taking a picture of their screen. I don't know why people do that instead of take screenshots, but anyway. It says, Concordia University is committed to providing a safe, civil, and inclusive working and learning environment for all community members. The Code of Rights and Responsibilities, otherwise known as the Code, and the Sexual Violence Policy provide a framework to promote and ensure a community free of sexual violence, harassment, intimidation, discrimination, violence, racism, discrimination, harassment, incivility, and microaggressions are not tolerated. Microaggressions. Let's talk about those microaggressions, because I'm hoping, okay, because this is a good news show. I'm hoping that some of you um, don't know what a microaggression is, because in a better world, that wouldn't actually be a thing, but it is. So I'll give you an example, right, about what, what's, a, what's a microaggression. See, a microaggression is when you weren't even trying to be aggressive, and a reasonable person would not even think that you were being aggressive either. So a common microaggression is to ask a person, where are you from? See, because I have a bit of an accent, I pretty regularly get asked by people, so where are you from? That is a microaggression because I could, I could infer it in the worst possible way. I could infer it and say, how dare you? How dare you presume I'm not from these parts? You mean this, you don't, this, this, is a, this is a North Carolina accent? You don't hear that? How dare you say such a thing? Are you, are you implying that I'm an immigrant because I'm so offended right now? Are you saying that I should go back to where I came from? How could you? That is the microaggression, okay? It's, it's absurd, but that is what you see going on in our colleges increasingly, and you usually see it amongst the student body um, because they've lost their minds, but uh, and yes, there are certain areas of the university where this is being taught. Obviously, I don't get it from nowhere. But you don't usually see it in official literature that puts forth an actual policy that says you cannot microaggress because it is so absurd and it would be so difficult to prove and basically any conversation would be would, would qualify. Any conversation where you ask somebody a question could qualify, you know. Where did you get that shirt from? Why did you assume that I got it from somewhere that was, that, you know, that was that was more downtrodden? You know, it, it, it's it's just you see it all the time. You, when you read these examples of microaggressions, it's stuff like that. There is no reason to imply to infer something wrong, but the person who receives it can infer it and in can take it in the worst possible way, and then go, oh, oh, look, you know, we have we have something to deal with here. Uh, Martin, thank you so much for the donation. He says, I plan to commit macroaggression against evil. Good for you. Um, we'll, we'll all work together on that. And Ocean Breathe Salty says, you're monetized. Keep up the good work. Oh, thank you for your donation. That was very generous. And yes, I am monetized for now, but don't say it too loudly. If they hear us, they'll take it away again. And I don't have any sort of clear policies on why they gave it back, why they took it away in the first place. Actually, I know why they took it away. They took it away because I did a, a video called Kyle Rittenhouse is a hero and they got mad because I can't defend people who defend themselves. Apparently that that's bad somehow. I don't know. They, they accused me of promoting violence. When you def when you are applauding someone for defending himself, self-defense is not violence. Self-defense is the end of violence, the termination of it. That's like if you were to defend a cop who interfered in a mass shooting and say, well, how did you defend the cop? You know, because he was violent. You know? Because if those who aren't getting this, the a mass shooting ends when another a good guy with a gun arrives. And it continues until then. No, generally speaking. Uh, so that, that that was the point there. Um, WW says, don't go back to Sheffield, it's not safe. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm well aware. I, I'm well aware that Sheffield is not safe. People in America don't realize just how, like, crappy Sheffield is, which kind of works out well for me. It's like, the most common question I get asked is, how close to London is that? It's far, far, for, for those who are wondering, it's far, but not that I'd want to live in either place. So there is that. Um, anyway, um, Rittenhouse is innocent, the jury got it right, absolutely. And it's sad that he was forced into that situation of being forced to defend his life uh, like he was. And there were people who said, well, he shouldn't have been there. And it's like, well, yeah, that, you could argue that. But also, he was there defending businesses because police wouldn't. And to what degree is it on the duty of people just to stand back and let nothing happen? To what degree are we saying that it's moral for us to do nothing? I think that it's it's quite moral for a, a young man or anyone to stand there and defend property that isn't even his after he's been requested to do so because he thinks it's the right thing to do because he believes in private property and he believes in law and order and decency. That's why he was there. You can argue, yes, yeah, 17-year-olds shouldn't be in that situation. The rioters shouldn't have been in that situation. The police should have been doing their job, but instead they were pulled back. He tried to turn himself in, but the police were so busy inside of their armoured vehicles that they wouldn't get out to arrest him. That's what actually happened. Anyway, not that I'm trying to redo my Cal Rittenhouse show that got me demonetized. <laughs> anyway, we should probably move on from that. See, I, I told you not to talk too loud, guys. <laughs> uh, let's see. I have a couple of... I have a, yeah, I have a, like, a lot of stuff that I wanted to cover, so I'm going to skip a few things because I wanted to make sure that I get the stuff that I really want to cover most. The time just sort of flew, I'm sorry. Um, oh, but I did want to discuss, this isn't good news, but I'm not in California, so I can mark it, and so that makes it amusing. All right, um, so trans residents in Palm Springs, California, are now eligible for a universal basic income of up to $900 per month, solely for being transgender and non-binary, no strings attached. Really? Really, again, I know it's not good news officially, but I can't help but laugh at this point because that place is going to have a near 100% rate of trans people. Because if you live there, wouldn't you be non-binary? You'd have to say, well, I'm paying taxes, you know, so I might as well just say I'm not binary. I don't even know what this means at this point, but I'm, I'm not I'm not whatever, whatever I have to be. Cause, and I don't see why you should, why a person should have to switch even clothing to the other gender in order to qualify. Why would they? It's bigoted for you to say otherwise. Now, this is the ridiculousness that we're headed towards, but it's like this city said, and I'm getting two kind of contradictory um, pieces of information. The city says that the program is only for individuals who meet a poverty threshold, but also are non-binary or, uh, or transgender, right? So in any case, we do know that part. What we don't know for sure is whether there's a poverty threshold, because I'm getting kind of you know, uh, two different stories regarding that. But in any case, even if there is, well, what about the people who are poor, but who are normal, healthy, well-adjusted, struggling to get ahead, struggling to feed their families, presumably, um, and hence why the program presumably exists? What about those people? Why don't they matter? And by the way, the money is being handed out by uh, two organizations. One's called DAP Health, and one is called... Queer Works. See, how could this possibly go wrong? Queer Works is the one handing out the money to the trans and non-binary people using tax money. How could this possibly go wrong? The, sorry, the, 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 uh, the CEO of one of these organizations, of DAP Health, his name is David Brinkman, and 
He told reporters that the transgender population, quote, is one of the most marginalized populations in our city who face some of the highest levels of housing insecurity, joblessness, and discrimination, unquote. Okay. So how, why does that mean that we need to target them on the basis of their transgenderism? I mean, if your argument is this group of people face, let's just say, housing insecurity and joblessness, all right, then why do we need to specifically single them out and say because they're trans they need money? Why can't you say we're targeting people who are having trouble with housing, with joblessness? Because it's all about their, their political partisanry. It's not about helping poor people. It's not about helping the jobless. It's not helping those who are facing trouble with housing. It's specifically about helping those who are trans because that works with the, the political nature of the area. The mayor, by the way, a man named Lisa Middleton, is trans. Yes. See, this is, this is so California. I mean, seriously, can you see this happening anywhere else? Not yet. Give it a while. Seattle. I hear you. I, I hear you. And I know that's what you're thinking. thinking. Seattle, New York City. Yeah, okay. It'll spread. But this is, this is always where it starts, right? In California, in the United States, this is just sort of like the hub of this kind of thing. Uh, St. Miles, thank you for the donation, for raising a Christian cross when you drink. I, I, I do appreciate it. Um, Richard Toth, you seem to be having more fun than a human being should be allowed to have, and I love it. Well, thank you. I, I shouldn't do it at other people's expense, but, you know, there was a time to get out of California, guys, and I'm just telling you, maybe it's passed. Okay, maybe at some point it passed. Maybe it passed around the time that California started using PG&E to enforce, that's the, um, the, the electric company uh, to enforce COVID regulations by threatening to cut off the power to places. Or maybe maybe that isn't enough. Maybe if you were in specifically in Palm Springs, maybe the time is when they're taking tax money, giving it to the private corporation called Queer Works to hand out as a, as a universal basic income to make sure that those who are trans or non-binary um, don't have to work. Because... That's where we are, and, it's, and it sounds absolutely bizarre, but it's true. Um, you can't dialogue with the left. Uh, well, yeah, it would seem so. Guys, quit, quit picking on my plants. My plants are just going to stay dry, um, which is not a reference to alcohol, but, you know, I was going to kind of torture them by watering them with ice cubes or something later. We'll see. Um, and thank you to Go Blue Grandma. I appreciate your your comments on the decor. I spent a lot of time getting that right uh, a couple months ago. All right. Um, oh, what we should talk about? Actually, really not good news. So I'll I'll, I'll try to sort of like lower lower my my, my happy tone a little bit because we have to cover it. Is the the shooting uh, that took place in the New York subway? Uh, because it's already out of the news. Right? And I think that's it's important to, to stop and look at why. It's already out of the news because it didn't fit the narrative. Because you know what we all remember? We all remember Charlottesville. We all remember the name of George Floyd, right? Do we all remember Frank James? Do we all, are we all familiar with him? Because it was just, you know, April 12th that he went onto a subway and started shooting people. He's anti-white racist. Do, 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 are people familiar as, as familiar with Frank James as they are with George Floyd? 
Uh, I don't think they are. Are they as familiar with, with him as they are with the Charlottesville event? I don't think so, and it only happened weeks ago. And that's, that's horrendous. This was a 62-year-old man who got into a, a Brooklyn subway tra tra train even wearing a green construction vest and carrying a 9mm handgun. He put a gas mask on. He de detonated two smoke grenades into uh, the, the crowd of people. And then he started firing at random at these different people. Ten people were wounded by gunfire. More than a dozen others were injured. Uh, the sort of statistics that we would hear if the dynamics were different, say, like it was a white shooter, because that's all it would take. Let's just be honest here. If it was a white shooter, we'd hear something quite different. Um, we'd hear all about all those different um, angry white men who are being radicalized on the internet. But instead, it's not, and so therefore, it's already out of the news. But we would hear about how children as young as 12 were injured in this, um, in this horrifying event. We would hear about the pregnant woman who was also um, shot. We didn't hear about any of this stuff. The fact that his gun uh, jammed, thanks be to God, is what limited the damage that he actually did. I'm going to go ahead and take him off screen now. But this is a guy who posted social media videos decrying the United States as a racist place that's awash with violence. He, he talked about his struggle with mental illness. This should be the sort of thing that the media would be all into, right? You could, you could pay CNN Plus to hear more about it. Okay, I don't think so, somehow. Somehow I think CNN Plus wouldn't have covered it. How about that? Um, and, and yes, he mentioned mental illness, but all mass shooters have mental illness problems. Their chosen actions don't demonstrate clear thinking and you know, commitment to reason. If you're trying to push an ideology, for example, your best way to, to, to spread that is not by going on a train station and shooting it up or going to a Walmart or, or, or any of that. That's not how you, how you promote this kind of thing. And so it indicates that you're not thinking clearly. But the social media rants of him reveal a man consumed by hatred of white people and convinced there's a, a race war looming. He posted memes like, please kill all the whiteies. Like, literally, that was one of the memes that he posted. And so, yeah, I think we should, we should take a second and say, well, okay, if you had a white guy who posted memes called, like, please kill all the black people, um, and then he went on and started shooting at, at people in a... In a attempted massacre, I think we'd be talking about it. I think we'd know his name. I think we'd know his face. And yet none of those things happened. This guy had uh, actually several prior arrests dating back to 1992. He has a sort of long vendetta because he believes that he was once discriminated against on account of his, uh, of his race. And it turns, it, apparently he was not. But he believes it, and for that reason he decided to go ahead and shoot random people. Actually, a variety of racial groups were shot, but in any event, he used to work as a machinist at Curtis Wright, which is a massive defense contractor. He worked with them for 17 months, and then he sued the company for racial discrimination in Newark Federal Court after he was fired way back in March 1991 for insubordination. That's how far back his kind of vendetta goes, to March 1991. He didn't show up on time. He did shoddy work. He told the supervisor at the, the location that he worked at that he wouldn't fill out the inspection sheets as directed until the union told him so. Um, so yeah, they fired him. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission investigated his case back in 1991 and said that he was disciplined the same as whites who committed exactly the same infraction or infractions as we're talking about in this case. A judge threw out his discrimination case that he'd brought against the company. He was arrested 
um, for repeatedly calling the company, making terroristic threats. In 95, he was found guilty of harassment. This is me doing the fast version of what you'd expect the, the media would do in a, if they were decent. Um, it's, it's almost an illustrative case as to what can happen if you refuse to move on and you let resentment sort of define your entire life. It's also, I think, indicative of what happens when we have a sort of culture, or at least a society, that says, yes, we have wanton racism right and left. It defines us. It, it prevents your ability to succeed if you're a black man. And all of your problems can be, bla can be blamed on white people. I think that those who are more um, mentally disturbed will be likely to latch onto these messages, believe them to be true, and you know, fail to thrive, fail to move on. They'll obsess over their sort of victimhood. And we see a lot of people that do that. And we've seen a lot of them over the past few years. We're seeing more and more attacks specifically aimed at, you know, white people, including Waukesha, of course. Um, uh, Richard said, there's a lot of black racism and black hate against whites, but the news media ignores it and has for years. Yes. Uh, you are correct, no one, no one died in this case. Again, thankfully, uh, he was shooting into a crowd that he thrown smoke grenades into, so I don't think you could actually see exactly he, who he was shooting. And then his gun jammed, uh, which, you know, became a bit of a problem. I'm sorry to say that that is when the podcast ended for that week, because I had an internet connection issue causing a very abrupt ending. Regardless, though, I covered most of what I wanted to cover. Only a couple of minutes were cut off of the show, so it could have been a lot worse. Thank you so much for listening regularly, and also for supporting the production of this podcast and the video series, too. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.